I tease Mary Lane sometimes, my communications. Oh, by the way, we still haven't had that baby. I feel like we're uh, on an airplane and we're just circling the runway and we're circling and we're circling and we're circling and by, my goodness, at some point we're going to run out of gas and land. Uh, but we're, we're, we're working towards, uh, towards that. But uh, Mary Lane's a communications ma- major. She went to college at Charleston and uh, she's a terrific writer and uh, she likes to use big words, and I tease her sometimes about using big words. And substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, say that a few times to this week, throw that word around, and you'll sound uh, really, really smart. We're going to be talking about that. Don't let big words scare you. I don't like, uh, uh, I don't like um, complex things. I explain that. This isn't going to be quite as complex as the Trinity. Two weeks ago, we talked about the Trinity, how that works, that we worship and serve a God that is one God, three persons, all three persons equally God. How that works completely, I don't know. If you know, uh, tell me, and and you can probably make a lot of money uh, doing that. We'll get you published and on your way. But that's the God we worship, a triune, the triune nature of God. Last week, Ken Simpson shared with us scripture about the inspiration of scripture, the infallibility of scripture, the inerrancy of scripture. Why do we value scripture? Why is scripture important? And how we have this resource to know God through scripture that Ken did a great job of challenging us. We cannot grow spiritually without scripture. And today we're going to talk about the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Or if I could boil it down to a more simple word for, for us the cross. If you go into any church, almost basically regardless of denomination, if you go in the cro- into a church, you will see a cross. And the cross to us as Christians, it's just not a symbol. It's not just a logo like we might have of our favorite sports team. It's not a logo. It's not just a symbol. It's the center of our Christian faith. It's all about this. It's all about the cross. So the cross is at the center of everything about the Christian, uh, Christian faith. The, the, the church, the cross is at the center of it. And what we as Christians have, what we as the church have, we have traditionally, the church has considered the cross good news, right? That's good news. Uh, that's called the gospel, good news. But in our culture, that's considered bad news. And unfortunately, in modern times in our culture today, the cross, the substitutionary, substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, it is under attack. This perspective of the cross being bad news is beginning to creep into Christian circles today. Because the idea is that for God to send his son to die on the cross for the sins of mankind, that sounds cruel, right? That sounds like divine child abuse. That almost sounds sadistic. That did God get some kind of sick pleasure out of sending his son Jesus Christ to the cross? And so, people, there's, there are people out there. 
even in some Baptist circles that are saying we need to stop teaching the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ because that makes God sound cruel or that makes, sound, that makes God sound mean. Or the question is being asked today, and this, I think this is a legitimate question, why did Jesus have to die? Why did he have to die? If God exists, couldn't God just forgive our sins? Why did he have to go to that extreme of his son dying on the cross? I mean, couldn't God just forgive our sins? Or, or, or the question is, are we really that bad of people that something so drastic needed to be done so our sins would be paid for? Those questions are being asked. That idea of stop teaching the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross because that makes God sound mean. Now, I want to address this. Because today we're going to be talking about the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. That's a big word, but it's going to help us understand what took place on the cross. Why is the cross the center of the Christian faith? So you've got some notes in front of you, okay? Some fill-in-the-blank notes. Some of you, you love those notes. I'm glad you like those notes. So we've got some fill-in-the-blank notes that we're going to walk through together. So let's just start with the word substitutionary atonement. And then we're going to begin addressing some of these questions. Is God a mean God? Is God mean? Is God cruel for sending his son Jesus to the cross? Did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God just forgive us? Are we really that bad of people to where Jesus needed to die? We're going to answer those questions in just a moment. But I'm going to use the word substitutionary atonement. And I want us to be all on the same page of when we say substitutionary atonement, what does it mean? And what does it mean? Christ, in his death, bore the just penalty of God for our sins as a substitute for us. Okay? So Christ in his death bore the just penalty of God for our sins as a substitute for us. So basically it means this. Christ died for our sins when it should have been us. We deserve to pay that penalty for our sins, but Jesus substituted himself. Just like you make a substitution in a sport or you have a substitute teacher, Jesus stepped in and took the penalty of sin for us. And then atonement, so that's substitutionary. Atonement means simply this. It means the work of Christ that, that Christ did in his life and death to earn our salvation. So when we say substitutionary atonement, that's what we're talking about. But what is so sad today, as I just said a minute ago, that there are liberal Protestant theologians that are rejecting this saying, well, this is, this is divine child abuse. We can't teach this. This is divine child abuse, or that God took some kind of pleasure in the death of his son. So let's address that for just a moment. Was God cruel in sending Jesus to the cross, his son? Was that divine child abuse by God sending his son Jesus? Now, I want to take us back to what we took, talked about two weeks ago, the Trinity, the triune nature of God, okay? We talked about the Trinity together. We walked through that doctrine together. And we came to understand that all members of the Trinity are what? God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all equally God, right? So, God was not cruel by going to the cross in Jesus. 
So by God the Son, Jesus dying on the cross, it was not to appease some violent need the Father had. See, by Jesus going to the cross, by God in the flesh going to the cross, God did not inflict, inflict the pain of the cross on someone else. He inflicted that pain on himself. So this was not some form of divine child abuse. This was an act of love. God inflicted the pain on, on, of the cross not on someone else but himself. God himself on the cross took the pain, the violence, and, it, and evil of the world into himself. When you think about that verse in John chapter 11, that says, no greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's what God did for us. This was not some form, don't believe that lie of liberal theologians. Don't believe that lie that this was some form of divine child abuse. God took the pain of the cross to himself. He took the separation of God to himself. So when we understand that perspective that Jesus Christ is God, then we realize, wow, the God of the universe did this so I could have a relationship with him. The cross was not an act of violence, it was an act of love. So we need to understand these things and issues, we have to remember who Jesus is. So maybe you work with someone and they say, wow, that was a really cruel thing of God to do to send his son to the cross. Like a, a loving father would not do that to his son. But it goes back, don't you see how all of this is connected? It goes back to the Trinity. God himself took that on the cross for us. So it goes back to what do we believe about God? What do we believe about the Trinity? So we as, we as Christians, as believers in our Christianity faith, our Christian faith, we believe the Trinity and that even affects the cross. You see how all this is connected? Isn't that amazing how that all works? So now to understand the cross, there are three key characteristics of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all equally God, we need to fully understand who God is so we can correctly interpret the cross. So one, key characteristics of God in us, God is holy and we are sinful. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 6, okay? Now, I'm going to warn you, we're going to flip around all the Bible, okay? So I hope you warmed up your thumbs and fingers this morning, and maybe you've got some Vaseline or lotion to use, okay? Your fingers might get chapped this morning, but turn over to Isaiah chapter 6, okay? Pretty familiar passage of Scripture, helps us to see that God is holy, we are sinful. Isaiah chapter 6. Verse 1, this is the prophet Isaiah, a vision of the Lord, okay? He's communicating this. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, it says this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Now, when I see this, I think, man, how cool would that have been to be Isaiah? To get a vision of the Lord sitting on a throne. What did he, excuse me, what did he see? He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And a train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, read it with me, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Did you know right now in the throne room of heaven, the angels are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is filled with his glory. So God is holy. So God being holy, that means that God is separated and completely, completely without sin. He's separated and completely without sin. But then in Romans 3, verse 23, very familiar passage of Scripture, so we won't turn, this, turn there, but you can write this down. Romans 3, 23, it says, For all have what? Sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Here's the beauty of the Christian faith. We are all in the same boat. We are all sinful. You're just as sinful as I am. You say, Adam, you're a pretty bad guy. Yeah, that's pretty, that's true, but you're just as sinful as I am. We're all sinful. We're all in the same boat. We're all equal playing field here, regardless of race, regardless of economic status. We're all sinful. We're all separated from the glory of God. Ever since our great-grandparents, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3, sinned and disobeyed God, in the Garden of Eden, we as human beings, we inherited their sin, and we are born sinful. You, say, you might say, Adam, I'm not that sinful. I'm not as bad as Adolf Hitler or Saddam Hussein. Or you could even say, I don't sin. Okay. Well, if we were to, and we're not going to do this today. We don't have, first of all, we don't have the technology, thank God. But if, if we could, if we were to put up on this screen... Every thought that each of us have had this week, we'd all get up and leave, wouldn't we? Or if we were to put up on the screen a transcript of everything we've said this week, we'd get up and leave, wouldn't we? We're all sinful. We as human beings, we, we are sinful. You say, well, Adam, we as human beings, aren't we all good at our core? No, turn on the news. I don't know if any of you have been watching the news over the last 24 to 48 hours, but I think the depravity of us as human beings in Charlottesville, Virginia, has been on full display. And this is a side note. I was not planning on saying this. This was not in my notes as I prepared this week. But folks, can I just say this? Racism and white supremacy and white nationalism is sinful. And it is a direct attack on first of what we believe about God as creating all human beings in the image of God. And it is a direct attack on the gospel. So when you turn on your news, uh, if you turn on the news this afternoon and you see what's been going on in Charlottesville, just know there's another sign that we as human beings were depraved. And the reality is because of our depravity, because we are sinful... I was watching a little bit of what was happening in Charlottesville yesterday. We need a rescuer. We need a rescuer. And you know what his name is? It's not Superman, it's Jesus. Number two, God is righteous and just. Turn over to Deuteronomy 32.6. I told you we're going to be moving around today. This is How many of you ever did Bible sword drill as a kid? Anyone do that? Okay, we're going to do that a little bit. Okay, we're doing that a little bit today. We're going back in time. Deuteronomy 32.6. God is righteous and he is just. Deuteronomy 
Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father, father who created you, who made you and established you? God is righteous and just. This means that everything that God does is right. Did you know that? Everything that God does is right. He doesn't make any mistakes. So he is righteous. Everything that God does, he is right. So take comfort in that characteristic of God this week. When your life seems like it's falling apart, God is righteous. He's right. God is right. God is just. He's also just. He's a God of justice. Aren't you glad that God is a just God? I mean, we see injustice all around the world, and it, we as human beings, it, it ought to drive us crazy. We have a God that is just. He is righteous. He's, this is a God that's worth believing and following. God is just. He is fair. So when we go back to the question of, well, did, did Jesus really have to die? We have to understand that God is righteous and just. The, as it says in Romans, there's a righteous requirement that is meant to be, to, that to, has to be met for sin. And that's, that's death, that's the death of Jesus. So the reality that someone had to die for the forgiveness of sins, God is righteous and just in that. Just like in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, don't, don't poo-poo away the Old Testament, Okay. Don't push, there's a temptation to like, oh, the Old Testament, I don't, there's a lot of things in there I don't understand, I'll just push it aside, I'll stick to the New Testament. No, the Old Testament's full of a lot of good things. One of the greatest things about the Old Testament is a picture of the coming Christ. Jesus is coming, Jesus is coming. So when we see all these sacrifices going on in the Old Testament, that means a greater sacrifice is coming. And so, like in the Old Testament, something had to die for the forgiveness of sins, and it was a lamb. And then in the New Testament, Jesus came as a sacrificial lamb and died for the removal of sin. It's fair by God. He is righteous and just. But then number three, God is love. God is love. Romans 5, 8. I'm not going to make you turn over there. I don't want to wear you out too much. But Romans 5, verse 8, it says, But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me read that again. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So again, going back to that idea, the, the, the act of the cross, that was not a violent act, that was not a cruel act, that was an act of love, because God himself died on the cross for us, because he is love. While we were yet sinners... Broken people, messed up people, rebellious. God died for us. So he's love. God in, the, God in human flesh died for us. Now there's four needs that each one of us, okay? I said that we are all in the same boat. So we all have four spiritual needs that must be met because of our sin. One, we deserve to die as the penalty of our sin. You say, Adam, that's cruel. Remember, God's righteous and just. We deserve to die for the penalty of sin. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Wages simply means payment. You know, if you make minimum wage, you make, well, I don't even know what that is anymore. It keeps changing all the time. If you make minimum wage, that is what you earn for your work. What we earn for our work of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. We deserve that. That is what you and I deserve. We deserve God's punishment for sin. 
You say, Adam, that's mean of God to be a God of punishment. Well, then he wouldn't be just. He's a God of justice. So we deserve punishment for sin. And then three, we're separated from God because of our sin. Again, because God is holy and we are sinful, because God is completely holy, he can't tolerate sin. He can't even look at it. So there's separation there. Just like oil and water can't mix, there is separation between us and God because of our sin. Then number four, we're held hostage by our sin. Proverbs 5.22, it says that we as people, we are held captive by our sin. What does it mean we are held hostage by our sin? We can't help but sin. We sin constantly. We're born that way. We come out of the womb rebellious, right? Our little girl, Anna, is going to come out of the womb rebellious. Why? She's going to cry because she wants back in. She doesn't want to come out, obviously. She wants to come out. We are born rebellious, right? Just look at a child. We're rebellious people, and we can't help but do it. We are held hostage by our sin, or as the Apostle Paul said, we're slaves to it. We can't help, by, uh, we can't help but sin. We can't help it. You and I can't help it. We can't help but lie. We can't help but be prideful. We can't help but be angry. We go down the list. We can't help it. We're held hostage. You say, Adam, this is terrible news. Adam, you're really depressing today. Sorry. This is really bad news. But there is a God who loves us. Isn't that amazing? We have a God that loves us. God sees this, and because his great love that he has for us, he sees the, us in this state of deserving to die for the penalty of sin. We deserve God's punishment for sin. We are separated from God because of our sin. We are held by our sin. God sees this, has great love and pity and compassion on us. He sees, the, sins, he sees us in this state, and he sends God the Son himself. To rescue us. We need rescuing. Just like some military sport, uh, special forces swoops in to rescue a hostage, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us, swoops in and rescues us. And how did he do this? Through his death and resurrection, his substitutionary atonement. This substitutionary atonement is the means of our rescuing. God said, I know they deserve punishment. I know they deserve to be separated from me, but I love them. So I'm going to substitute myself for them. I am going to die. I am going to take the penalty of sin. I am going to go through the separation. And that's what Christ did on the cross as God in the flesh. So because of that, our needs are met. And how are they met? Jesus is our sacrifice. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. I think we have a, uh, a Sunday morning small group that's going through the book of Hebrews right now. I told them good luck. It's very complicated. It's a tough book to understand. But the point of the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews, they're trying to point out Jesus is just better. That's the theme of it. Jesus is better. He's better than sacrifices. He's better. Than, Jesus is just better. And then uh, Hebrews 9 verse 26 it's talking about Jesus being the sacrifice once and for all. Have you ever wondered why don't we still sacrifice animals? 
Well, because there's PETA, for one. But why don't we sacrifice uh, animals today? Because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. So we don't need any more sacrifices. And Hebrews 9.26 talks about this. Look at it. It says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he, that's Jesus, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Jesus put away our sin by our sacrifice. He paid the penalty. He paid the debt we owe for sin. Jesus died as a sacrifice for he paid the debt. Jesus is our propitiation. 1 John 4.10, this week read that. I don't have time to get into that. But Jesus is our propitiation. What does that mean? He removed the wrath and judgment that we deserved, and then he exchanged it, that that punishment, into favor. Propitiation is cool. It's really cool, okay? Uh, We've got a lot of baby clothes in our house, and Mary Lane is constantly going and exchanging stuff, okay, to get money back or to buy new things. And so when if you go to the store and you buy something that you didn't want, what do you do? You take it back, you exchange it. Or if you're me, you're just too lazy to do it and it just sits around in the house for months on end. You go back and exchange it. So if you go back to whatever Walmart, Target, whatever store you use, the world, Amazon now, everyone shops at Amazon now, no one goes to the store anymore, Amazon, and you return something, you get your money back, there's an exchange made, you give back the shirt or whatever that didn't fit or you didn't like the color, you exchange it back, you get your money. Well, Jesus made an exchange for us. See, we deserve the wrath and judgment of God But by the death of Christ, there was an exchange made. And so instead of receiving wrath and judgment, we receive favor with God because of what Christ did. So propitiation, that's a cool word, all right? Number three, Jesus provides reconciliation. Instead of being separated from God, like we talked about, because of his holiness, our sinfulness, instead of being separated from God, we are reconciled, restored into a right relationship with God. Turn over to this last passage, I promise. 2 Corinthians 5. Turn there. I want you to see this. I want you to see it for yourself. Why? Because I want you to know I'm not making this up. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 19 is what we're going to be reading. So turn there. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, it says this. Everything is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. God is a reconciling God. Sometimes in human relationships, it could be a marriage between a husband and a wife, It could be family members. It could be friends. And relationships are so important. That's how God made us. God made us to be relational human beings. Now, some of us are in different spectrums of that. Some of us need more relationship than others. But there are moments in relationships that reconciliation needs to happen. Could be an argument, could be a disagreement, whatever. Well, because of what Jesus did on the cross for us, our relationship with God, that separation that's there is healed. It's reconciled. We're reconciled with God. 
Jesus provides reconciliation. And finally, Jesus is our redemption. I think my favorite book of the Old Testament is the book of Ruth. I love the book of Ruth. Because in the book of Ruth, if you haven't read that, about a year or so ago, we went through the book of Ruth last summer. You remember that? Wasn't that fun? I love the book of Ruth because in the book of Ruth, you have Ruth who's in this really tough situation. Her husband's died. She's a foreigner in a foreign land. And, I mean, she's basically a social outcast because who she is. She's a Moabite woman living in the, in the Jewish world. And so all of a sudden, a guy named Boaz a lot arrives on the scene, right? Who was Boaz? A distant family member. And Boaz comes and some of you are like, what? What are you talking about? Read Ruth, okay? It's better than any kind of chick flick you could possibly watch. It's a great romantic story if you like romance. And Boaz arrives on the scene and he redeems Ruth as his bride. You know what that's a picture of? Jesus redeeming, buying us back. Boaz bought Ruth back as his own. Jesus buys us back from being a hostage. He buys us back from his blood. Jesus is our redemption. He's our kinsman redeemer. Some of you are still looking at me. I'm serious. Read the book of Ruth. Have a date night and read the book of Ruth. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it, and I'll save you some money, too. Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our redemption. You see, faith family, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, it's at the core of our faith. It's at the core of the gospel. We talk about the gospel a lot around here, how we want the gospel to be the center of everything. Why? Because it contains salvation. The gospel's everything. Because without the gospel, as the Apostle Paul says, we are a people worth having pity on. So we have the gospel. And you see, this salvation has been provided. But we have to believe in it to restore, uh, to, in order to receive salvation. You say, Adam, this, this could be very possible. We could have someone sitting here and say, Adam, this just sounds like a fairy tale. That a God that created this universe came as a human being, died on the cross for the sins of the world, and then was resurrected. That's a lot to believe. I'll admit that. That's a lot. But when there's that belief, and I'm not just talking about a historical belief like we believe in George Washington or other, in any other historical figure, but when we believe in that to where there's a life change, that contains salvation. And we have a relationship with God. We receive a home in heaven for eternity. And the Holy Spirit moves in our heart to believe in the work of Jesus Christ for salvation. So what can I say, folks? Believe. Believe the gospel. The Holy Spirit is wooing you to believe this. And the reality is, there's nothing you can do to earn it. It's all Jesus. It's not you. There's no amount of money we can give. There's no amount of good work and social work and, and justice work that we can do to earn salvation. There's no, no amount of hours we can spend in the church there's no amount of good things we can do, no matter how many prayers we can offer. No, there's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. It's all Jesus, and all we do is believe. 
believe the gospel. I know I'm looking at a group of people that have been in church for a long time, and that's one of the most dangerous places to be. Because we hear it so much that it's like, yeah, I believe it. Folks, no, believe the gospel. Might be for the very first time you're understanding what the cross truly means and what is at stake. Believe the gospel for your salvation. You say, Adam, I'm a believer. I've already believed. Then worship. This God that came and took this sin, on, the sin and the pain on himself, that's a God worth worshiping. So believe and worship. The substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ is at the core of our faith. Hold on to it. Don't let it go. Because that is our salvation. And when we understand our salvation, we understand all we, have. We, all we truly have is Christ. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for coming to rescue us. We as human beings need rescuing. We can't save ourselves. And we thank you for Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and seeing us in our spiritual state, our spiritual need, and coming to save us. God, I pray if there's anyone here that has never believed this, that has never Maybe they've heard it before, but they've never believed it. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would do the work in their hearts. Draw them to yourself. Open their eyes to the truth so that they can be set free from their sin. And then, God, I ask that because of this high price that you paid, that we as believers would live a lifestyle of worship that we would honor you with our lives, that we, would be that we would live worthy of the gospel because you have given us so much. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Stand with me.